This is the second night in a series called Right Side Up. And last week, Rob did an excellent job talking about the Beatitudes. And he talks about two different parts to them. One is God's, um, our relation to God and our relation to people. And these themes of relation to God and to people will continue throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So tonight, keep that in mind because that's going to come up. And it will continue to come up each week in its own way. Jesus um, brings the Sermon of the Mount to us, but he brought it first to a whole group of people on a mountainside, and he brought it to his disciples. And when he did this, he did this to show us something underneath the surface, something beyond what we could see. He brought us an understanding of the kingdom of God. Maybe... I've had this experience since I've moved to New Zealand, and maybe you've also had this experience, I don't know. But have you ever been watching something on TV, a sport, a game, and you've realized you don't actually know the rules? Yes. In coming to New Zealand, this has happened to me a few times, usually cricket, um, netball, which I never heard of, and rugby. And I can see the players playing, and they're totally in it, and they're getting points because I can see the little numbers on the bottom of the screen going up, but I have no idea how they're getting those points. And there can be someone next to me who knows all the rules, and they are the biggest rugby fan, and they're so excited, and they're cheering their, their team on, but neither one of us whether I know the rules or this person knows the rules, are actually playing the game. We're sitting there watching, not knowing and knowing, but we're not the athlete that has disciplined themselves, that has learned the skills, that not just knows the rules, but knows how to play and play it well. And when Jesus is talking to this group of people on the mount, he's talking to a group of people that know the rules. They should know all the things that he's talking about, but he's calling them to go deeper. He's calling them to commit and to invest and to be in it, not just on the sidelines, not just cheering those other rule keepers on, but to be in it. And one of the things right before the section that I'm going to talk about, Jesus says that he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he starts to address some laws and some abuses of the law. And the law was important, not just because they were rules, not just because they were showing people how they ought to live, but because they were an identity marker for Jews. They had these special rules that everybody else could look at them and say, you're following the God of Israel. You must be Jewish. It was their identity. When you're looking at a rugby player, you're saying, Wow, 
you are a rugby player because I have never seen legs like those before. <laughs> they, that's their that was their identity. That was, that, the law was more than just rules. So tonight, we're gonna look at some rules, some real easy ones, no, you know, nothing too difficult. And they are murder, adultery, divorce, and oaths. Woo! So the first two that, that Jesus brings up are laws that are in the Ten Commandments. They are something that, that every Jewish person would know, and probably even people outside of Jews would know, okay, they, they keep these laws. And the second two are laws that are in the Old Testament, and, and people still know about them. They're just not in the, the top ten. So the first one, well, the main point of all of these is going to be the right side up way of Jesus challenges us and challenges our relationships. This right side up way that Jesus presents, it challenges us and our relationships. So the first one, murder. When Jesus talks about this, people kind of call the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' ethical code. He's putting before them a set of ethics. And people were, different scholars along the way have said a few different things about this code of ethics. One is that it's impossible to do. They say it's an ultra piety and Jesus doesn't actually expect anyone to be able to do this. And then there's this other, this other thought that these are just a list of do's and don'ts to prove that you are good enough, which we know that there's no way we can prove that we're good enough. And this area of murder, sounds so interesting, um, is, is one of the first laws that Jesus addresses, but he's not actually talking about murder as we'll see. He's talking about something more. In Matthew 5.21, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And what Jesus is talking about is a cycle. If he were actually teaching about just getting angry, like the emotion of, hey, that's wrong, or you know that kind of thing, righteous kind of anger, or just this sudden emotion, that would, that would be too high of an ideal. Like we see in scripture, Jesus gets angry at times, usually with the Pharisees or, or people that are cheating other people. But he's talking about something 
that is the cycle of judgment, destruction that eventually leads to murder. It's an inward attitude that he's addressing. He's not banning anger, but he's giving a framework for how to deal with anger and not let it run its destructive course. Maybe you know this kind of anger. It's something that develops into bitterness. And it's very easy to do in terms of somebody does something wrong to you or says something to you or looks at you wrong. And you start to think about it. In the moment, you're upset. But then suddenly, it begins to replay over and over in your mind, a broken record, a song on repeat, however you want to put it. But that kind of dwelling on it is something that makes the anger stick. And the more you think about it, the angrier you get and the more offended you become. Then there's this part where Jesus talks about calling someone Raka and you fool. And Raka means you're worthless. You don't mean anything. And you fool means you fool. <laughs> but actually it doesn't. It means the word is moros, which means moron. So that's where we get this word. Like if you're calling somebody an idiot, you're just a moron. You're, you're in danger. Calling someone worthless or moron in the moment can often feel so justified. It's something it's just so easy to do. It doesn't even have to slip out of our mouth. We can just think it in our heads. But the reality is our words have power. And that person you've just called worthless, in God's eyes, has worth. That person that you've just called fool is someone who is loved and valued by God. And unfortunately, because we're Christians, <laughs> we represent Christ. So when people hear our words, they are hearing the words of Christ in their mind. They're thinking this, they're putting that together. The anger and the, and the words that we use in anger, they put us in the place of judgment. And when we judge, we call judgment upon ourselves. And that will, this will come up again later on in the Sermon on the Mount. The call that Jesus is asking to respond to is when you're in worship, or really in whatever you're doing, stop and remember. Remember a name. Remember a face. Is there someone that you've wronged? Whatever you're doing, if you're in the middle of a worship service, or whatever you happen to be doing, stop and seek out a path to be reconciled. In the Greek, this means to renew the friendship. Seek out a new path with that person. And Jesus says, settle matters quickly. Don't wait until things get out of hand. Do it while you're still together on the way. So if at all possible, it's okay. If at all possible, work things out with the person or the people while you're still in relationship, while you're still in process with them. It's so much harder when you let years go by. It's so much harder when that person doesn't even want to talk to you anymore. So do it while you're still with them. I used to think that I was a pretty easygoing person that didn't hold a grudge. I, people would say things to me, it wasn't a big deal, do things. Usually I didn't understand or notice. And 
I thought that way until a few years ago when I experienced some judgment against myself, when I experienced unjust treatment. And at first I didn't realize what was happening. I knew I was upset, but I didn't realize that it was starting to get deeper in me. And I realized I am thinking about this all the time. Like I could be anywhere and all of a sudden these thoughts are popping into my head and the pain would be there instantly. And I could cry at any given moment because it just hurt so much. I could hear the words that were said about me. I could see what had been done or not done. And, and over a few months, I realized that I wasn't the same person I had been before. I had changed and I, would, I, I didn't know what to do about it. And the thing that was so difficult is I felt like it was impossible to forgive. I felt like I wouldn't be able to do it. And I, in theory, it was all there. Yep, God forgave me so I can forgive others. But it felt totally impossible. And finally, I remember sitting there on a couch and God was giving me the opportunity to forgive. And he said these words to me, Wendy, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And I knew that I had to forgive there and in that moment. And then he asked me to do something even more that I didn't want to do, which is to walk in that forgiveness. That I wasn't just going to forgive that one day, but it was going to be a journey of walking and the, and the first few days after that choice and praying and just naming names and say, you know, getting really specific with God about forgiveness, it, it was, you know, several times in a day where I'd have to say, I've chosen forgiveness. I've chosen forgiveness. And then as time went on, it wasn't multiple times a day. It was maybe once a day. But even still, even now, years later, a memory can just pop into my head like that. And all the pain, all the emotions come flooding back. And my response is, I am choosing to walk in forgiveness. I am choosing to walk in forgiveness. A word about being in danger of fire or hell, because it's in this passage, or being thrown into prison. Bitterness is hell for the person who is bitter. It's prison. It's totally prison. You're trapped. Anger that turns to bitterness affects your personality. It affects your relationships with other people, and it affects your relationships to God. And there might be some people in here who feel like they haven't heard God's voice in a really long time, and it might be because of unforgiveness. Just might be. Forgiveness and unforgiveness will come up again in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot of these different themes, themes will. And there's this guy named Brother Yoon. He's a Chinese Christian. Maybe you've heard about him in a book called Heavenly Man. And he um, experienced torture in prison for his faith. And he writes about forgiveness. He says, don't think that the person who has wronged you must ask for forgiveness before you can give it. This is a dangerous way of thinking. Even at the very moment that the angry crowd was baying for his blood, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He forgave them. 
Brother Yoon continues, he says, I know many disciples in China who have spent decades of their lives in prison for the sake of the gospel. Despite unmentionable cruelties done to them, these men and women are free. Long ago, they forgave their persecutors, even though the prison guards and police officers never came to them and asked. Dear friend, even if someone has committed the most heinous sin against you and has never admitted it or shown the slightest inclination to do so, you still must forgive them. If you can forgive them from your heart, you will be free. And prison doors that have kept you confined will be opened. And then he gets me here. <laughs> Reconciliation requires two parties to come together and sort out their differences. Forgiveness requires one. We forgive not to set the other person free, but to set ourselves free. And if that person wants to be free, they will have to go to the Lord. And we don't have to carry the burden of bitterness anymore. Let's look at the second law that Jesus addresses. Adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And again in this section, Jesus gets to the root of the issue. Adultery is the physical action of an inner condition of lust. This cycle of lust, when it's unchecked, is what leads to adultery. And in Greek, um, adultery, blapon, refers to one who keeps looking beyond a mere passing glance. So it's not just this thought that comes into your mind. It's the thought that keeps going. In both the areas of anger and lust, there's a call to pay attention where your mind lingers. And your mind wants to linger. Biologically, our minds want to linger, want to dwell. And pornography, sexual and violent entertainment, distorts God's vision for holy relationships. Twice Jesus uses the phrase, causes you to sin, your eye, your hand. But he doesn't really want us to gouge out our eye or cut off our hand. And if you see, next time you see a person with a patch over their eye, don't think, wow, they've got some issues. <laughs> Just <laughs> The mention of the eye and the hand it's all about looking and touching. If looking is causing you to lust, if touching is causing you to lust, Jesus is not simply suggesting a change of attitude. He is teaching us to change a practice that leads to lust. So get practical about lust. This is not something that's theoretical. Make some drastic changes in your life. This is not a man issue. This is also a woman issue. This is not a married issue. It's also a single issue, a dating issue. And you know, whatever you're a person, lust can be an issue in your life. 
Is it a habit? Is it a coping mechanism? Is it an addiction? Get really good personal accountability. Get counseling. Get accountability software on your computer and your mobile device. And there's a really good local group called Safe Surfer. Call them up. Get it on all your devices. Because of shame, lust is often characterized by secretive patterns and isolation. Having supportive community around you that you can trust helps you in the path to freedom. Develop new habits to get some new neural pathways in your brain. And last week, Rob showed a video about a guy that taught himself how to ride a, a reverse bicycle. And that guy, it took him like eight months or something to do it and you know, fail, 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 and finally it just clicked. Well, this has a name. And this thing of trying to relearn something that's so ingrained in your mind is called limbic lag. And it, you've made the decision, but it's not automatic. And I experienced limbic lag when I moved to a country where, where I'm driving on a different side of the road. And not just on the other side of the road. Everything is different in the car. You're, you're in the other side of the car. And so even now, almost two years later, when I go to to signal, I often turn on the wipers. And it drives me crazy, because my, my brain is just this automatic thing. And in light of limbic lag, lust feels normal. Lust feels right. And holiness feels weird and off. And so we have to actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the healing and freedom that he's offering you. He's offering it but you have to join in with that. It's in the choosing to surrender day by day, moment by moment, where the Holy Spirit changes us. And Paul talks about this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're gonna talk about another pattern in this world, which is divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is a very important question in Jesus's day. And there are a few schools of thought, the conservative, and the more liberal. And Craig talked about this a few weeks in church, which was awesome. But the conservative Pharisees, the school of Shammai, they limited divorce to what Jesus is saying, to unchastity or immorality. And the more liberal Pharisees, the school of Hillel, well, you could get divorced if your wife burned the dinner. Like, it was that liberal. And then there's an even more liberal guy named Rabbi Akiba that went even further and said that divorce was okay if a husband found a woman that was more attractive. And in terms of the liberal and conservative, people were leaning towards the liberal. Men were not giving their wives certificates of divorce. They just would tell their wife, you're free to marry, meaning I reject you. 
so just go find a different man. It was very, very rare for Jewish women to divorce their husbands, so it was almost always likely it was a man divorcing his wife. And there is a specific word for the act of adultery, but in this instance, Jesus chooses to use a more general word for adultery that doesn't just mean the act of adultery, it also includes lots of other kinds of sexual sins, including idolatry. The idea of divorce in this context didn't just mean divorce, it also included remarriage. So for this culture, for the Pharisees, and even for, for Jesus in this context, he's putting remarriage with, with divorce. And if he wanted to separate them out, he, he would have done that. So it's, that's assumed. Divorce was permitted, but it had just gone too far. And again, Jesus gets back to the heart of the issue. It wasn't about just adultery. Broken relationships were not God's original intent for relationships. And divorce, not God's intent for marriage. In the right side up, God is at the center of a marriage. The husband and the wife are looking to God for their identity, not each other or something else. It's God who they worship. And the source of love for the love they have for one another is coming from God himself. God is the one fulfilling them, sustaining them as individuals first, and God is binding them together. And later on in Matthew, Jesus talks quite a bit more about divorce. And he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this might sound familiar because it's in a lot of wedding marriage vows. What God has joined together, let no one separate. When God is replaced in a marriage by a different kind of worship, by the idol of lust or anger, or greed, or selfish ambition. That's when the marriage suffers. That's when it falls apart. The source of love, worship, and identity is found outside of God. And the damage of idolatry doesn't just happen to the people in the marriage. It happens to their families. It happens to the people that they love. And it happens to their church and their community. Just because you're not married in this room, don't think this doesn't apply to you. Because you will never be able to enter into the kind of relationship or marriage that you dream of unless God is at the center of your life now. For those of you who have experienced the pain of divorce, maybe you've had a divorce or you're in a family that's experienced divorce, there is healing for you. And for those who are in a difficult marriage right now, God is calling you to move the, this focus on pain to him. He's calling you, regardless of the outcome of the difficult marriage, to shift and look at God, the source of your identity, the source of love and the source of your healing. Divorce is not just a broken relationship, it's breaking a vow. It's breaking that I will, that I do. 
And in this fourth section, we're going to be going to discuss oaths or vows. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by God's throne or by the earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The history of the oaths in the Old Testament leading up to this, it wasn't about somebody necessarily giving their word, saying, I'm giving an oath because I need you to believe me. It was saying that I have an allegiance to the God of Israel or whatever God you're serving, but you're showing your loyalty to your God when you would make an oath. Fast forward a few hundred years, and there's a great abuse in oaths. And these oaths were about swearing, about swearing on things that pertain to God but weren't God himself. So heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your mother's grave, you know, whatever it is. And then at the end of the day, you could say, well, I didn't really mean it and because I, I didn't swear by God. I just swore by all these other things. And so it was a tool. Doing oaths was a tool for deception and dishonesty. And it was such a common practice. The Pharisees were really trying to figure out how do we get a hold? Like, we need to figure out this oath thing because it's out of control. And on all the people that were sitting on this mountain with Jesus would be extremely familiar with this and his own disciples too. And so instead of like the Pharisees trying to like rein in the oath problem, Jesus said, let's get rid of oaths. Let's just get rid of it. And when he does that, he gets to the heart of the issue of honesty and integrity. Today, oaths are something most people are only asked to do in court, so we're kind of unfamiliar with it. But this passage really deals with our words and our conduct. Do we really mean what we say? Do we do what we commit to saying what we will do? Do we willingly try to deceive people to get what we want? Do we have honest business practices? Do we try to manipulate people or situations? When we surrender to Jesus as a disciple, we are called to this standard of integrity that God wanted and still wants. And when we think about creation and, and how God set things up before the fall, the, the picture that strikes me in terms of this kind of honesty, integrity is nakedness. Don't take this too far. You'll go down the lust road. But in terms of nakedness, people had nothing to hide from God and they had nothing to hide from each other. And this kind of honesty breeds trust. It breeds trust. In the right side up way, Jesus challenges us in our relationships. And in a world full of anger and cruel words, let forgiveness be a marker of your life, not backbiting, not bitterness. In a world that profits 
from human trafficking and sexual entertainment. Let a pure thought life be your practice. Surrender to God's holiness in stark contrast to the lust and objectification that the world promotes. In a world with high divorce statistics and fallout from broken relationships, let the honoring of marriage be your mindset, seeking healing in your relationships. And in a world riddled with deceit and cover-ups, let honesty and integrity be on your lips, creating safe spaces where trust can be rediscovered. Your relationships and how you treat people is on display, whether you realize it or whether you want it. And remember, earlier I said that the law wasn't just about following rules. It was an identity marker. Jesus fulfilled the law, not so that we can just follow the rules better. He fulfilled the law so we can follow him, so we can be transformed into his likeness for the sake of the world and for the sake of his glory. And between this section and the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? For it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The right side way up of Jesus is salty. It's salty. It's a light that burns in the hearts of people that are following Jesus and not a bunch of rules. Tonight, I've talked about some bigger issues, and none of us are immune to these things. None of us. We don't get a shot at the door, a vaccine that says, great, now you don't have to deal with this anymore. You don't have to be human. You don't have to make, have, make mistakes and have sin in your life. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. Take some time as the worship band comes to listen. And I have a feeling there are some issues that I talked about tonight that you would rather just not deal with. You'd rather just pretend and go away. And that is probably the thing that the Holy Spirit is saying, remember, recall, surrender. For some of you, it means forgiveness. And it means naming the name, choosing to forgive. And for some of you, it's a return to purity or getting a purity you never had before. And that first step might just be to repent. Say, I can't do it. And I need your help. For some of you, it's just recognizing that God is not at the center of your life or of your relationship or your marriage. And for some of us, 
It's a restoration of integrity. Does your yes mean yes? Does your no really mean no? Let's commit to living out what God really wants. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to do this on our own. Thank you that you are available to us. That you know the cry of our hearts, or even if we cry out loud, that you hear us and you're so close and you're so near and you're not going anywhere. And no matter how bad things have gotten or how messed up we think things are, you see the reality and you still love. So thank you. Thank you for speaking a couple thousand years ago on the side of the mountain. Thank you for speaking tonight. Thank you that you're here and available and ready to move in our hearts. In Jesus' name.